Hey guys, good morning. <clears throat> For those of you who don't know me, my name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's fun to be in a different location this morning, but uh, something that hasn't changed is we're still going through the Gospel of Mark. Woohoo! Seven months strong. Here we go. One of the themes we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark is um, that Jesus unsettles us. He makes us feel uncomfortable. And I think that part of the reason for that is that we so easily try to find our security in anything but Him. All of us, without exception, are on this desperate pursuit to try to make the earth as comfortable as we can and to try to make it our home. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was just thinking about all the things that over the years I've placed my security in, whether it's a relationship or it's money, whatever, but I started to think about it more, and it actually became kind of embarrassing just how ridiculous some of the things are. Let me give you one just absolutely ridiculous example. So I started playing golf after Tiger Woods won the Masters in 1997. I was in seventh grade. And the only way I could afford to play golf was there was this little gem of a golf course that was close to my house called Parview. And Parview might have, at the time, been the junkiest golf course in America, which was great for me because for $100 for a junior golfer, you could get a year-long membership there. And so every summer, for probably five or six years, I would be at Parview Golf Course on a daily basis. My mom would drop me off in the morning and she'd pick me up at night and I would just play as many holes as I possibly could. And Parview is one of those places where one guy carried the golf clubs for the foursome and another guy drugged the cooler behind him filled with beer. And it was more likely that you would find a guy with no shirt than with a collared shirt. <laughs> so anyway, when I think of Parview Golf Course, I get this nostalgic feeling. But I found out about 10 years ago in 2007 that a real estate developer bought Parview Golf Course and he was going to build million dollar homes on it and put in a nice gated community and all that. And so in preparation for the sermon, I actually went on Google Earth to look at what they had done because I haven't been back since. And I got to be honest with you, it was pathetic how sad I was. And just looking at the images, and, I, and specifically, there's this one pond that is now in some guy's backyard, and that used to be the pond that I would hit over on hole number two. And I remember the first time I like hit it over this pond and landed on the green. And I could go on and on about Parview. I got so many great memories there. But here's the thing. I, in some small way, was placing security in something so stupid, in a golf course. And all of us, I think, we've got these, these things, these memories, these vacations, these trips, these relationships that were maybe sort of superficial that remind us of just good times or the security that we felt or, or something like that. And I think what Jesus wants to do for us this morning 
is he wants to remind us that our ultimate security cannot be found in anything in this world, no matter how superficial or how significant it is. And so it's going to be a little bit of a jarring passage for us. But sort of the big idea that's going to pull it all together is that it's only Jesus that gives us the security that we long for. We find that life can be disillusioning, disappointing, disheartening. So we're going to, we're going to look at three places that we will not find security and one place we will. So the three places we won't find security are in religion, false teachers, and the world. And the one place that we will is in Jesus. Let's just take those one at a time. So number one, religion will not give us the security that we long for. We're in Mark chapter 13, just looking at the first two verses for this first heading. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So it seems like the disciples are saying something kind of normal, right? These buildings are amazing. It seems like Jesus kind of immediately just kills the conversation, right? See all these buildings? They're all going to be gone. And there's one building in particular that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the temple. And it's hard to put into words how shocking this would have been for the disciples. This is the second temple which was built in 515 BC. So the current version of the temple had stood for a little over 500 years. And before that temple, there was the Babylonian captivity which lasted about 70 years. And then before that, there was another temple that lasted from about 587 BC to 768 BC. So essentially, there has been a temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And Jesus is saying, this temple is about to be destroyed. The temple for the disciples and all good Jews was the place where God's presence dwelt. It reminded Israel that God was their God and that they were his people. It had incredible religious significance and gave them this tremendous sense of security. And Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed. Disciples are like, uh, we don't like this conversation. We'll see later that this spawns an entire conversation about when the end of the world will be. It's also amazing because Jesus, in this passage, is prophesying something that will happen in just a short time. In AD 70, the Romans approached Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. Which leaves us with a question, how are we supposed to understand this? Why did God allow this to happen in his providence? And the reason is partly because the temple was meant to point to a greater reality. The temple was just a building. 
It was meant to point to the presence of Jesus on the earth. Jesus said that he tabernacled among us. He came and lived among us as God. It's also pointing us forward to the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us as believers now. But all of those things ultimately point to this day, this great hope that we have as Christians, when God will be with us as our God, fully present with us, and we'll actually no longer see him with eyes of faith, but we'll see him face to face. So that's the purpose of the temple. It's meant to point us forward to something else. And guys, do you know that this, this is the purpose of all religion? Now keep in mind, you can use religion in sort of two different ways. You can use it in sort of a negative, like working your way to God sort of way. That's not the way I'm using it right now. I'm just talking about the outward form of our worship. There will be no Salt City Church in heaven. The form that our worship takes is not the main point. The main point is that hope that we have laid up for us in heaven. And so God, in his grace, destroyed this outward form of religion so that we could more clearly see by faith what our hope is. Okay, imagine this. Imagine that you lived three miles from the Swiss Alps. And you had this beautiful picture on your wall of the Swiss Alps. But you had never been to the Swiss Alps. And people are always coming to your house and you're showing them, you're like, I gotta show you guys this picture. They're like, what's it of? The Swiss Alps. And so you're walking people into like this back room in your house and it's this beautiful gold frame and there is this picture of the Swiss Alps. Isn't this amazing? People are like, yeah, you know what's even more amazing is going to the Swiss Alps and you begin to just talk to this guy who's got this picture of the Swiss Alps and you realize he's never been there. Like, isn't the point of a picture to sort of give you this longing to go there and if you live three miles away, wouldn't you just go there? One of the most gracious things that you could do or somebody could do for you if you had that picture is to take that picture and break it over their knee and say, go look at the Swiss Alps. The point of the picture is to give you a longing for the place. The point of the temple was to give them a longing for God. But it's the condition of the human heart to replace God with the outward form. It's easy for us to say, I love my church. I love my small group. I love these people. I love these relationships. And to actually lose the point of all of it, which is to remind us that our security and satisfaction can be found in God alone, not in our religion. Not in the outward form. If you come to the church and you don't have a relationship with God, Jesus would say, you're missing the whole point. And you might begin to experience him dismantling your religion. Okay, maybe it's not so much religion. 
this outward form that is the place where you're placing your hope. But there is actually a specific charismatic leader that you are following. Somebody that you look to as sort of a spiritual guru. Jesus warns us, secondly, not to place our hope in false teachers because false teachers will not give us the security that we long for. Listen to this. This is pretty profound. Mark 13, three through six. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? They're asking about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus says, here's the sign of the destruction of the temple, dot, 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 and the sign of the last days, the end of the age. Until I come back again, there are always going to be false teachers. So then the question becomes, what is the mark of a false teacher. And Jesus says in this passage, the mark of a false teacher is somebody who says, I am he. And immediately, I think when he says, I am he, we think that this false teaching is going to be very obvious. That what false teachers do is they would say, I am the Messiah. I am Jesus. I am God. Something like that. But what we see in the entire testimony of Scripture is that false teachers are much more subtle than that. I think that it would definitely include that, and every so often you get some wacko who says something like that. But it's more common that false teachers in a subtle way say, I am he, in the sense that they would say, I am the authority. I am the example. I am the person that you should follow. Now, this is in contrast to the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, when we see a prophet or a teacher who's not a false teacher but is a true teacher and I think sets the example for us of what a true teacher is as opposed to a false teacher. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is what John the Baptist says. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So you see the contrast? False teacher. I am he. I am the one that you should follow after. I'm great. I'm awesome. No matter how subtly they say it, Run from that person. Here's a true teacher. I am not worthy. I am nobody. Telling everybody about somebody. I'm nobody telling everybody about Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about me. It's about how awesome he is. Not about how awesome I am. You want to distinguish between a true and a false teacher. True teachers point you to Jesus and away from themselves, which I think involves two things. 
that you're gonna see in the life of a true teacher. You're gonna see worship and adoration for Jesus. When you're around them, when you hear them talk, your heart is gonna be stirred by how awesome and amazing and mighty Jesus is. And the second thing that you're gonna hear from them is a constant confession that they are filled with sin. They are unworthy to even be in the presence of God. Guys, it was great. This weekend, we had our first ever Salt City Church elders retreat. And one of the things that we did at this elders retreat is we prayed together. And we just went through the ACTS acronym, which is a great way to pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So just got to hear each of our elders and personally just pray to God and adore him for who he is. So we just walked through these different passages of scripture and just worshiped him together. And after doing that, we went into this time of confession. And I loved it so much because I was able just to confess the sin that was in my life in front of my brothers to God. And you know what? There wasn't like a long period of silence during that. I was just so humbled and taken aback and thankful to be part of this group because, glory to God, our elders are aware of their sin. And it's a mark of a true leader in God's church to say, yeah, I'm not worthy to confess sin, to be honest. We never outgrow our need for the grace of God. You can spot a false teacher when they are full of themselves and not full of love for Jesus. When they're slow to confess their sin and quick to tell you to follow after them. So our security can't be found in these false teachers. There are no spiritual gurus. There's no one who has it all figured out. There's only one person who has it figured out and his name's Jesus and it's all about him. Okay, but maybe, okay, maybe your temptation isn't to try to find your security so much in the religious world or in Christianity or in spiritual gurus or teachers, but your temptation is actually more with the world. It's not to feel security in the church, it's to feel security out there. And again, the world will not give us the security that we long for. Look what Jesus says. He describes the way that the world really is. Mark 13, 7 through 10. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What we see in this passage is this strong contrast between the world and God's kingdom. Jesus prophesies that the world will always be as it is right now before he comes back. You know that every group of Christians 
who have looked at the signs of their times have thought that they live in the last days. I think what would be accurate for us as we look at Scripture is to see that the last days have lasted about 2,000 years. Do we live in the last days? Yes, we do. We'll see later that Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back, so we shouldn't try to figure that one out. But here's the thing. The world is a really messed up place. Jesus said, very simply, in this world, you will have trouble. We see that in this passage in the form of natural disasters and famine and political unrest and upheaval. And maybe the one that hits closest to home for us as believers in Jesus is persecution. As a Christian, you can expect not to escape from the trouble of this world, but because you're a Christian, your expectation should be that you experience more trouble than those who don't know Jesus. I think that in one way, that's really hard for us to hear. In another way, isn't it kind of comforting? That what's happening in the world doesn't catch Jesus by surprise. The fact that everything is going crazy and everything is out of control and you can hardly watch the news for 10 minutes without being completely depressed, that does not catch Jesus by surprise. And there's actually a glimmer of hope in this passage. Something kind of amazing, if you really think about it. Jesus is talking at this point to a group of four guys. At this point, he has maybe 100, 120 close followers or disciples. And he tells them, this message that I've been telling you guys is going to go to every nation on the earth. Yes, there's going to be trouble, but even though there's trouble, my kingdom is going to be unstoppable. The trouble is going to be like the storm clouds gathering. My kingdom is like a seed, and what it needs is rain. And when the storm clouds gather, that's the perfect atmosphere for my kingdom to grow. And do you know what's happened since that point? It's happened. It's accelerated in the last hundred years. The gospel is being preached to every nation on the earth. Either this is the luckiest prediction in history or Jesus is God, he knows what he was do- he's doing, he's right and he's coming back. Let me give you just one example of how the kingdom of God goes forward in the midst of persecution. I just finished one of my favorite books for the second time called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Anyone ever read it? So Corey Ten Boom lived during the Holocaust in Holland. She was hiding Jews in her house and she was captured. She was placed in a concentration camp and there's this beautiful scene as she retells sort of the autobiography of her life. She had somehow snuck a Bible into the concentration camp. And one of the things that she was upset about when she got there were there were fleas everywhere. I mean, it's horrible conditions, people being killed, and then just the cherry on top is the fleas. Fleas everywhere. 
But what her and her sister Betsy realized is because there were fleas, the guards wouldn't come in their room. The guards didn't want anything to do with the fleas. So her and her sister, every night, would gather a group of people from all of these European nations who had been brought together so that the Nazis could kill them. And they were daily seeing people get saved. Even in the darkest environment, God's light was shining forth. And they realized that God had actually brought them there for that specific purpose that his kingdom would advance. So when we begin to experience persecution and trouble and pain and life gets hard, what we should begin to do is we should begin to sit on the edge of our seat and we should begin to say, Jesus, show me the opportunities that you have put around me in my place of work or my school or my family where I can testify about this hope that I have. Here's the direct quote. I kind of alluded to it that Corey Ten Boom said. In darkness, God's truth shines most clear. Okay, so what, what is this pointing us toward? This glimpse of hope that in the midst of the darkness, the gospel is, is advancing. It's going to all the nations. God is using this church and many other churches around the world to push forward his agenda when all hell is breaking loose. What does that give us a glimpse of? It gives us a glimpse that Jesus alone gives us the security that we long for. In other words, Jesus is coming back. He's going to make everything right again. You're not going to find your hope or your security in the things of this world. You're only going to find your hope and security in his great story that he's writing across the universe. Mark 13, 24 through 26, and 13, 32 through 33 say this. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's the big idea. Jesus is coming back. That's the good news I have for you this morning. Jesus is coming back. He is going to make everything new again. He's going to come in the same way that he left. He went up in the clouds. He's coming back in the clouds. There is going to be a day when Jesus comes back. There will be people on the earth who will see him come back. And he is going to make everything right again. We're not supposed to be people who are trying to figure out when that is because, as the text says, if you ask Jesus, when are you coming back, he would say, I don't know. The Son does not know. 
Only the Father knows. Do you know what I think this is? I love to give my kids hope. So fun. Partly for my own benefit, right? If you can give a kid hope, maybe you'll get some good behavior for a little while. The screaming will stop. The tantrums will stop. And I can just rest for just a little bit. So there's a little bit of false motives in there. But here's what I do. I will sometimes tell my son that we're going to do something really fun. Maybe it's a week out or two weeks out. But I won't tell him exactly when it's going to happen. This is how I build anticipation. So I tell one of my kids, this is going to happen. Then they go down and they deliver the message to the rest of the kids. And the other kids are like, when, are, when is it going to happen? And that kid, let's say my son, will say, I don't know when it's going to happen. And then I get other kids coming up to me. I got a bunch of kids. They'll come up <laughs> kind of one by one and they'll be like, when is this going to happen? And I'll be like, I'm not telling you, but get ready. And the anticipation starts to grow. And things that my kids would never dream of doing, like picking up laundry or packing a bag or whatever it is, they'll do quickly because the hope's building. And maybe I'll color in a little bit, like we're going to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Maybe we'll get some McDonald's and I'll throw out some maybes in there. And the anticipation just keeps growing and growing. I think that's what God has done for us in this. He has purposefully not told us the time or the day. He hasn't even told Jesus. And he sent Jesus as a messenger to us. And Jesus has told us, I'm coming back. My father knows. You can talk to him about it. If he didn't tell me, he's probably not going to tell you. But he's coming back. He's going to make everything right again. And even as I talk about that, doesn't your heart begin to leap? Doesn't that begin to make sense out of your present reality? Why your relationships and your financial situation and your job and your life really just aren't that satisfying. And the more that you chase after those things, the more sort of elusive they become and the less security you seem to have. What if we just said, you know what? No more. If we trusted Jesus' words, we believed that our hope and security are found in him alone, what kind of lives would we live? Jesus says we would be awake. And I think that means a few different things. But very simply, we talk about these things all the time, but that doesn't mean we do them, right? I think we'd be in the word of God. Because we'd be sitting on the edge of our seats each morning, and we'd be like, Oh my goodness, I know what it's like to find my security in the things of this life. And so we'd go to the Bible with anticipation, like, God, show me the hope that I have so that I can live with my security in you. I think we'd want to hang out with each other, right? It wouldn't be obligatory just to hang out with each other once a week at Connection Group. I think we'd actually want to be with each other so that we could stir each other up and remind each other of this hope that we have. 
And then I think we wouldn't need any evangelistic programs because we would be the type of people that are so excited that we finally found the answer that everybody's looking for that we would just want to tell them about it. And so when people ask us why we're different or why we have this joy, we wouldn't say, because I got plenty of sleep last night or because I make a lot of money or because my football team won a game, but we would begin to actually believe what we say we believe and we would want to tell people about it. That'd be great. I think more people would start coming. I think this would be an attractive place to come to church. I think we would love each other a lot. Jesus, do that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this great hope that we have. Thank you for your word where you have um, told us the secret of the kingdom, that you've led us in, that you've built our anticipation, that you've warned us not to be disillusioned or disheartened or depressed by the things that are going on in this world. Thank you that you predicted that what's happening today would happen. Help us to set our hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed when you come again, Jesus. Would we be changed people, not because we're great, but because you're a great Savior and we have a great hope. In Jesus' name, amen.